Hey everyone, this is the last episode of Coordinated Universal Time. It was a successful experiment, but we're calling it now, you know, better to burn out than to fade away. We had a series of hypotheses when we started. Could we make something beautiful, connecting, collaborative? Could we push the medium of podcasts a bit? I'm happy to report that yes, yes we can. And you can too. In the best case scenario, maybe this podcast inspired others to carry that flame forward with their own projects. If one of those people were you, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Even though our journey together on UTC was only eight months and five episodes, along the way we connected people across several continents. We wrote a lot of new music. We're inspired by the likes of Mark Fisher, Italo Calvino, Angel Mark Lloyd, Terrence McKenna, Derek Jensen, J.G. Ballard, and many others. And for our last episode, I couldn't imagine a better guest. Gabriel Diceta is a media anthropologist practicing in Taiwan and Italy. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy. with that we can just uh dive right in um do you want to just give a quick intro for those of us or our listeners who don't um aren't as familiar with your work yeah sure well my name is gabriela de seta and uh but you can call me gabriel that's i have multiple international versions of my name uh, in every place i go but um yeah i i am well i'm I'm a, I guess I have an academic background and I'm still pretty much in academia doing research. And um, I have a quite mixed academic background. So the, the, the shortest way of presenting my work is saying I'm a media anthropologist, but I don't actually have a degree in anthropology. And so I jumped between different departments and universities and disciplines. And uh, I'm kind of a mixed you know, background person that has done some Asian studies, some cultural studies, some sociology, and then I ended up working in um, uh, my, my most recent position was in Taiwan, where I was a postdoctoral fellow in an institute of ethnology, which is how they call anthropology there. And um, 
most of my work has been related to China and digital media and different configurations of this topic. So I've written about uh, vernacular creativity, memes, selfies, different forms of sociality, social media, civility and incivility. Just, yeah, it depends. And um, on the side, I also written quite a bit about music and sound and listening, um, also based on kind of ethnographic research about uh, underground experimental music in Asia, especially in China and Hong Kong and in Taiwan. And yeah, recently just been exploring a little bit more about the theoretical aspects of situated listening and music making and sound making. Awesome. I do want to explore kind of the parallels between um, the the sound work and the kind of the more academic ethnography work, because I think there is interesting sure. um, kind of parallelism there. Um, but I think maybe an, a good starting off point would be, you know, as I was, we were talking about, you know, the fact that this is a podcast, we're recording it. I have a field mm -hmm. mic actually that I'm using. Um, you had a essay not too long ago that, that you titled Against Sonic Naturalism. Yeah. And I thought that might be an interesting jumping off point. Yeah. Well, that essay was, was quite controversial. And uh, um, well, so basically what happened was that um, I've been doing field recordings uh, for since maybe 10 years ago when I started doing more experimental music noise type of stuff. A part of it was just going around with, uh, you know, tape recorder or dictaphone and just recording random stuff and then i realized that there was a genre of music that was called field recordings and people can just you know release cds and tapes filled with stuff you record around the world and that's like music or it's sound it's something that people listen to so so more recently um after doing some ethnographic work on different music scenes and experimental musicians then i started thinking about Okay, some of these musicians do field recordings. Let's look into field recording as a genre, as a as a music genre, and as you know, a form of practice. And what does it mean to do field recordings? And is there any discussion happening there? And so, just you know, I read more and more books and articles and reviews, and then I started look listening to more records that I didn't listen to before, like big classics, and uh, looking at some exhibitions and. Um, I guess, you know, I, I've been thinking about this thing for, for years and I gave a talk uh, maybe two years ago uh, in Toronto at this conference. It's called Tuning Speculation, which is all about sound. And so I just gave a very, you know, coarse, undeveloped version of this argument at that conference. And, um, and people were like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. It's nice. You should develop it and blah, blah, blah. And so... At some point, I was in Taiwan, and I went to see this exhibition uh, by an artist who is a French artist who lives in Taiwan. He's a pretty big name in field recording. And he curated his exhibition with some, some classic works and some local works. And I spent maybe, you know, three hours one day and a couple of hours another day just going through all these works and taking them in and trying to use the experience of the exhibition to rethink through my arguments. And then the, the essay you mentioned kind of came out of that. So it was, it was kind of, uh, it was not really an exhibition review. It was more like, okay, let's look at this exhibition sure. and think about these problems more broadly. And the main argument was that, you know, 95% of all your recordings that I listened to and that I looked at and read about 
were deeply uh, committed to this naturalist um, aesthetic and also ontology yeah. and epistemology. Yeah. So it's like the, the very idea of taking a microphone and recording things uh, for, for many people is, is uh, taken as an act that, of, that has some naturalist connotations, not in the sense of, it's not like, um, it's not an ecological argument. It's not a, you know, it's not a connection to nature as, as nature versus culture. It's more like the idea of, of a naturalistic representation. And so um, I, I personally don't like it. And what I wanted to do was understanding why I don't like it, why I have this, you know, uh, very much, bodily response to it of just like no this is not good right i just wanted to understand so i wrote that essay as a kind of uh inquiry into this problem yeah i mean what what, what i realized is that the visual media have gone through a lot of reflection in this respect so from landscape painting uh through photography there have been a lot of discussions about okay when you take a photo of something it doesn't mean that it, it represents that thing Right? It's not the same thing, and there is a lot involved in representation and the materiality of the camera and of the printing and of the media through which you look at the photo and the sensors and everything. And uh, so today, very few people think about image making in this strictly, strictly naturalist framework. But for some weird reason, when it comes to sound, especially field recordings, this is still a very much a mystique. And um, yeah, that's. That was kind of the problem that I was trying to identify in the, in phonography and field recording. It does strike me as, as being kind of similar to this sort of ethnographic approach to knowledge and to experience, and that there is not this privileged, like pure, unfiltered form of uh, knowledge in ethnography's case, or like music or sound in, in this case, that like not only is everything mediated, but there's also nothing like unfiltered on the other side of the lens or the the microphone either that there's not really like you you get tied in knots when you start to talk about this uh yeah, that's all right the, <laughs> that's normal i think um, it's good <laughs> yeah I, I mean it's not it's not just a, a problem of okay it's mediated so we need to account for that and um i think that's i mean of course that's an important step to say okay we, i'm using the microphone to record a thing uh so I need to look at what the microphone does and how it does it. And, you know, a microphone just basically takes vibrations in and makes them into something that a human ear can understand. So it's you're, you're creating sound when you do field recording. But besides that, I think there is the whole issue of representation. Even if you account for uh, materiality of technology and blah, 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 then, you know, uh, some people do it and I really appreciate it. But then what remains is this idea that still, you're doing field recording and you're doing, a, I don't know, you're doing a recording of like two hours of this specific place because then what comes out of it is a piece of sound that you put on a record or online. And that piece of sound is a representation of this place or this event. There is, there is still a very much naturalistic uh, framework that underpins this idea. Um, Whereas if you if you thought about the same thing for, I don't know, photography, right? It'd be like, okay, I took a two-hour video of this mountain and then I put it here. And that's, you know, the mountain. The people would be like, yeah, so like, what what's the point? You know, first of all, it's just <laughs> one perspective on the mountain on one day of yeah. the year. And um, then what's, you know, yeah, I mean, it might be beautiful to look at, but 
um, you know, what does it mean and why, why, why did you do it? And why is like a hundred people doing the same thing? And, mm-hmm. uh, whether there's people listening to it. So I thought, you know, of course, if there is an audience and there is a, you know, a group of uh, musicians who produce works and some of these works actually enjoy, but I was very curious about why sound carries this mystique of immediacy much better than, you know, visual media. Um, it's very common like even besides field recordings, when you go to uh, you know sound art exhibitions, many sound art works are, are very much uh, grounded on this idea that sound is somewhat somehow you know immediate, intimate. Uh, so they ask the audience to just you know feel the sound and uh, just be connected in a direct way to this or that. Well, you you have a you have a line in your in the essay where you talk about how it's it's because of you know, the experience of sound has like a different affective, like flavor. Yeah, you mean like it's more embodied and uh, there is a very, very rich body of writing and theory about the, you know, that you don't just listen with your ears, but with your, all your body and this is vibrational forces and uh, things. I think, you know, that's uh, that helps uh, people feel, an artist feel that, you know, if you pass through sound, you somehow have a more direct access to experience or to perception. But what I was I was saying about Jonathan Stern, he wrote about this idea of a audiovisual litany, and by this he means the this idea that has been shared by many writers over time that uh, listening and seeing or hearing and watching, I mean, all these two domains of experience, are um, kind of a uh, in parallel, and they, they have some neat divisions. So, for example, vision is more, uh, you know, some some are more direct and some are more in, indirect, some are mediated, some are less direct, uh, mediated. And so, like, many artists and writers uh, actually unthinkingly or unwillingly even uh, use this kind of uh, dualism between these two senses to perpetuate this idea that, you know, sound is more embodied and more direct and more uh, relational and more uh, intimate and blah, blah, whereas vision is, you know, uh, distancing and too rational and blah, blah. So what are the consequences or some of the consequences of this this kind of confusion or mystification of uh, of sound? Like, like what is, why is this bad? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, it's, bad as in you know it shouldn't be done and i still you know sometimes i just enjoy taking a you know field recording of the jungle somewhere and just listen to it and chill out but the i think it's the same problem that um was criticized in anthropological writing in the 80s and 90s and here so we can link back to that uh, ethnographic theory body of ethnographic theory um and it's the problem of the politics of writing the politics of representation. And so both in there, and as I said, in visual media, there have been critiques of you know what it means to represent something. So you, you observe it, you record it, you document it. Then after you've done that, you, you go home or you go in a different context and you represent those things you have accumulated, those data. And uh, you know the problem with field recordings or phonography at large is the same, is that the, uh, if you abide to this naturalist framework, uh, you, you just don't do all this uh, 
self-critical reflection on what you're doing and you just think that you know you have a microphone you have an external reality and you can just capture uh, a part of it and then you can put it somewhere maybe in a lossless file you know and this all this idea of uh, high quality and um uh fidel high fidelity and you're just reproducing something and that's uh, you know it's in itself worth of uh uh, the other people's time to go listen to it. I think it's uh, it's not bad as much as it is a waste of the medium and on the possibilities that actually, you know, sound recording and sound reproduction can offer uh, thought and communication and representation. So that idea of possibilities is something I want to latch on to. I think, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the Mark Fisher article I sent over. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so something that he talks about that I think is maybe... Um, valuable to tie in here. Uh, he talks about certain types of music, um, dub or hauntology is, is something he kind of coins to talk about it, um, how it foregrounds the like produced character of music, how mm -hmm. instead of trying to um, obfuscate or hide uh, the fact that something is being recorded, you put that front and center by having like the hiss and the crackle of, mm -hmm. the, um, of the recording um, equipment. Um, and he contrasts this with um, a term I also wasn't familiar with, uh, rockism, which is kind of this focus yeah. on live performance and kind of this fetishizing of this pure experience of music. If hauntology or dub foregrounds the produced character of music, then maybe ethnography foregrounds the produced character of research. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's very much true, although... Um, <clears throat> Ideally, it should be like that. I don't think, you know, doing ethnographic research is just, um, you know, just a method. And, uh, you know, you can basically, you can do it very, you know, you can do a very good ethnography or you can just use it as a little piece of your research and it's perfectly fine. But sure. I don't think that, you know, what you're mentioning as this idea of being self-reflexive about representation is, you know, it's kind of a basic tenet of ethnographic research and a lot of people recommend it and, uh, you know, not everyone always uh, abides to it because sometimes it's not relevant to the sure. actual project you're doing. But yeah, it's an ideal you should uh, strive towards, and I think it's um, it's very much the the same thing. And um, I remember the 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 article by Fisher was had a very interesting sentence. I'm trying to find it was the beginning of. I remember I read it back then when all the ontology movement was kind of uh, bursting out. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> this is uh, like on page 49, there is this sentence that I thought was quite like pivotal for our discussion today. It says, um, we are suddenly made aware again of what the first listeners to phonograph recordings were acutely conscious. They were witnessing the captures less of the past erupting into the present. So this is a, he, he's, he's, connect, he's very much connecting um, the debate about ontology emerging from, in this case, I guess, UK music in the early 2010s to this like broader discussion about the arrival of, the, of recording sound as a possibility, which, I mean, he's quoting Kittler here, but it's, it's this idea that, you know, the phonography, like the invention of the phonograph was a kind of a breakthrough in the history of media because for the first time people were aware that sound was not just always present it was not just always presentness 
that there was this possibility that sound could come from the past or that sound, as in this case, uh, would say something about the future. And then in, in Fisher's argument, he ties this to Afrofuturism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the idea that this is something that's new for the UK and the US and, and Europe in the 21st century, but it's something that the African diaspora has been dealing with for centuries. Yeah. And this kind of encounter between uh, a lost past and a canceled future. Yeah, I think it, it broad, more broadly is this, um, I don't remember where I was reading about this, but like these days I was reading something else that was uh, entirely related, but um, I think it was something from Nagaristani. But it was this this whole, mm -hmm. it's, it's a matter of like a larger matter of temporality. <clears throat> so what, what he's saying here is that, you know, in the, like in Western time, um, ontology was like drawing on, um, just evidencing this little uh, reaches through which time, in this case, the past, was erupting into Western temporality. And, and Afrofuturism was doing exactly mm -hmm. the same, but like suddenly showing that there was a possibility of the future, like barging into the present. So is there any tie here that we could make? Would it be artificial to, to draw this tie again with ethnography and foregrounding the practice of research and how this kind of captures something from the past and packages it? Is there anything similar happening there, or is that too much of a stretch? What do you think? No, I don't think so. I think it's always um, there is there is a, well, a very good book by uh, Johannes Fabian, who's a I think he's a German anthropologist, but um, it's called Time and the Other, and it's a it's a, it's a big theoretical uh, anthropological reflection on the role that time plays in, um, <clears throat> yeah, basically anthropological research and encountering the other and so basically the 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 premise of most um let's say western epistemology is that uh, one encounters the other always in his uh, in one's own time mm. so much of anthropology was was premised on this idea that i go somewhere and i encounter the other living you know in some kind of different temporality than the west than europe and then i bring back their experience <clears throat> and i write it up uh, in the framework of European present, and they will always forever live in a different temporality. They will be always like, you know, in the past, in a colonial past or in a past of primitives, you know, the, the idea of like primitive, it just means they're like, they're living in a different temporality. And so he says that this uh, creates a, a denial of coevalness. So you, you deny uh, the possibility of living in the present to you know, different groups of people that do not belong to the to your epistemic community. So in this case, it will be you know, Western uh, academia and, and theory and universities and anthropology, but mm -hmm. at large, I think at large, this is still true in many um, many aspects of the contemporary world. So there are many cases in which uh, different communities write about other groups of people and assign them different temporalities as a way to keep them at bay or to uh, right. colonize their, their time <clears throat> or, or the other way around to take something back. What Fisher and you know most uh, Afrofuturists or uh, people writing about this kind of disruptive temporalities in speculative thought and fiction, they they have been uh, mostly writing about specific examples of this broader idea that um, time is not just you know a singular thing, but there are many possibility of actually exploiting it.
So we've been talking about ethnography a lot as a method and a practice and as something that you use in your research and as something that also exists in the world as a thing people do. So I guess my question coming from that is, what does ethnography allow you to do that other methods don't? What does it give you? And then what are its limitations? What can it not do? What is it dangerous to try to do with with ethnography? Well, I think um, for me, the the main reason to start doing work that is partly ethnographic or is informed by ethnographic research is that um, most of my research revolves around media and mediation as an activity. And uh, <clears throat> of course, the first uh, approach to this kind of topic is to do you know different kinds of analysis of media. So you, you look at movies and memes or whatever, like sounds or songs and stuff. And so it's like what media study does, media studies does at large, <clears throat> but um, something you miss, especially when you, so if you do this at home, like if you, you know, I'm from Italy, and if I start doing a research project about how Italian people do uh, take selfies or something, um, I, I am able to probably do it, do a pretty good job without ever even talking to anyone because I live here and I had, you know, I had a, a life experience here. Uh, I see people around me, I can overhear them talk and I have a pretty good idea about how to take selfies. So what happens when you go in a context that is entirely different or like mostly uh, not alien, but very much uh, estranged from your experience. So in my case, I was doing research in China and then Hong Kong and then Taiwan. So what happens is that you have two paths and you can decide to either just continue to do analysis of different kinds of media and hope that you, you, you get get it right and you get a sense of how they are actually produced and, and circulated or you have to talk to people. And uh, to me, ethnography is entirely this. It's just like the idea of being somewhere doing research and you know talking to people about what you're doing and trying to understand with them uh, the, the topic of your interest and then listening to what they have to say and you know giving them the chance to shape uh, your research project to to influence it and to mm. change your mind. Yes. So it's not I've I've never approached it maybe because I didn't have a training in anthropology. So it's not like I'm, uh, you know, I'm a hundred percent committed or or I think it's the only way of doing uh, relevant research. But I always approached it as a as a as a tool or a toolbox with through which you can you know open up issues that you yeah. might otherwise not not really have access to. Also, I do mostly qualitative research because of my training. So. Sure. It's pretty natural to to adopt to put an ethnographic component in it. But I've seen I have colleagues who do you know massive quantitative work, but they also still use ethnography to you know get an, an entry point into the data or to check that what they're seeing is actually grounded in reality. So I think it's a it's a very flexible uh, toolbox, and a lot of people are adapting it. You know, from art to uh, to market research. So it's not just uh, it's not, not just an academia. I'm part of an interesting uh, Slack group about applied ethnography and taking ethnography and applying it to uh, user experience research and other fields. It's actually, I don't know if you're, um, it's uh, Trisha Wong is the one who started it. Oh yeah, um, I think you, I think so you told me about this. She has a lot of interesting this. work yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was actually, you know, my entry point into looking at um, China and, and uh, digital media in China was was kind of through her work. Yeah, and um, and so from the beginning, my 
experience of it has been flavored by this kind of ethnographic uh, orientation towards what can be known about the internet in China, which is that um, you know, all of the, the big data studies, you know, you might be able to make some interesting charts and graphs, but like the actual knowledge has to come from talking to people and allowing them to, to change your mind, like you said. We also uh, mentioned last time briefly about, you know, kind of the classic ethnographic problem of like outsideness versus immersion. And I think maybe all of this leads to another question for you, which would be, what do you think that ethnography has been able to allow you to learn or experience as an Italian or as a Westerner in China that you wouldn't know otherwise? Like what, what has surprised you or changed your mind? I mean, to, to go back to the, the previous point, I think, I think one, I think there's um, the, the balance between outsideness and how do you put it? Immersion. Immersion. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's very productive on the one hand because, okay, you're in a, in a new place or in a place that you're not unfamiliar with and, uh, and you, you feel like you're thrown out into the outside and trying to achieve some kind of immersion, you know, you can, you can make yourself at home and start understanding the place in its own rights is great. And I also think that it, this makes it somewhat easier to present some findings and to, you know, represent what you're seeing or what you experience. Because I'm imagining, you know, if you, uh, if you're, for example, if you're American, and you say, okay, I'm going to do an ethnography of uh, digital media use and the uh, uh, Rust Belt, right? Or like in, in rural, I don't know, like a rural state. Um, then, you know, first of all, it would be probably more difficult to achieve immersion in a context that you might be, you know, either partly unfamiliar with or that you might have a lot of preconceptions about or, or maybe you've moved out of it and then you come back and you have to adjust again. And uh, on the other hand, you also have politics because when I, you know, I went to China when I, mean, I was maybe 20, 21, and I had no idea about the country and I had no idea about the role that a country had in, in geopolitics or geopolitical debates or international relations. I was just there and I started to you know, try to figure out my life there. Um, but if you, you know, imagine you know, yourself doing the study in, in rural America, you probably would go there with you know, pre-existing politics about what your conclusions might say about you know the country or the world at large, so it might be even more complicated to to represent or be at, at ease with yourself and with what you're saying, what you what you find out among the people. So for me, it was um, it was not even a conscious choice when I went to China for the first time. It was to study language, and then I went back several times to yeah maybe get a degree and get my language a little bit better. So my approach was was unknowingly ethnographic in the sense that, you know, I was often alone or I had to make new friends or I had to figure out, you know, ways of uh, talking to people to get what I needed. And, um, you know, quite naturally, uh, at least for me, it, it came quite naturally to say, okay, you know, let's, let's talk to, to, to this person or this other person and see what they think and how they explain what is happening in, in this place or in the country or what's the idea about it. And so even before I could formalize it as, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing ethnography, I'm an anthropologist, I'm studying this or that, it was just a way of, uh, of making sense of my surroundings. And I think a lot of people do it, um, you know, even non-professionally as a, as a way of existing. So that's also why I think it's such a powerful research method. Yeah, now that you talk about that, I think something that um, 
maybe subconsciously drew me to ethnography as well was, you know, being in China and I was learning about China formally in school, you know, learning about the politics and the history right. at the same time as I was learning about it informally from, you know, Chinese friends and teachers. Yeah, exactly. And the, the stories I was hearing from these two different sources were very, very different. Yeah. And uh, I think something that ethnography does is allow you to kind of thread between those two things and figure out how the, you know, the media narratives of China are different from and somehow still also arise from the, uh, the reality on the ground. Yeah, I think one thing that is, uh, you know, often criticized in um, anthropological writing and theory in general is that the conclusion of, you know, 90% of all papers and books is always, ah, it's it's complicated. <laughs> like, it's more complicated than when we began. And now, you know, that's the conclusion. It's complicated. We need to look more into it. <laughs> Some variations of this. Yeah. It's always like that. And even in my art, like, I, I realized that even in my writing, I just, you know, I start with this you know, deeply immersive vignette, and then I move into theory and I discuss some methods and analyze some stuff, and then the conclusion and just say, okay, well, you know, it's more complicated than I thought. Uh, <laughs> you know, I need to write more and then to to look into more details. And so this is the the usual conclusion of ethnographic work, and I don't think it's it's bad. I don't think it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, it's precisely what what you're mentioning it that you know you go to China and you do a, or, or or to any place yeah, and you you know you go study the language and you're exposed to you know what the university or the language school wants to tell you about the country which is something you know they they packaged for foreigners and then you then you talk to some friends who are students and you know they're, they're local students and they give you a different version of what they see around them and then you talk to entrepreneurs or you do some market research and you know you're exposed to different worldviews and it, it necessarily becomes more complicated and i don't think the point is you know doing a massive synthesis at some point i think the the, the job is to you know follow these complications we started on this when we were talking about uh, hauntology and how fisher ties this to afrofuturism yeah um and then speaking of China and all the hype surrounding it, you know, even the, um, you know, the weird corners of Twitter are not immune to uh, the China hype because Sinofuturism is also, you know, I think no less guilty of this, the same kind of yeah, yeah. Um, just glorification or, or fetishization of, of China as some kind of herald of the future. Um, and I think last time we talked to you, your, your conclusion basically with regard to sign of futurism is there's not really anything there, that it's it's mostly the same kind of media narratives of, uh, uh, you know, that the business world or the geopolitical world is also guilty of. At least, you know, when I think about um, Hong Kong or Shanghai, you know, Anna Greenspan has the book Shanghai Future about how, you know, Shanghai has looked to the past for its vision of modernity and moving towards this kind of imagined, like reconstructed 1920s, where it's once again, the Pearl of the Orient. Um, I think Taiwan, I don't know as much about, but it maybe also has a symptom of this where, you know, as kind of the anti-China, it's a vision of a China that is, you know, plugged into global capitalism and um, is democratic and maybe coming from all this, like, what do you think that China or or Shanghai or 
or Hong Kong or Taiwan can tell us about uh, the future or or it can they tell us anything? Is this just a wild goose chase? Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on different, yeah, I'm basically, you know, always reworking my previous arguments. So mm -hmm. recently I've been, you know, working on, on this stuff I've been writing about Sinofuturism at different points. But I wouldn't say that it's, you know, it's, it's just nothing. I think it's quite interesting because um, if you look back at how Sinofuturism emerged, um, it's very much connected to uh, what we were discussing about Afrofuturism and mm -hmm. temporalities and, you know, the UK in the 90s and stuff like that, because, um, you know, it's, there are clear genealogies. So we know how the term emerged and it was very much shaped by music, um, by certain, you know, underground communities of musicians and kind of, uh, it was interesting because at that time, uh, it, it was a time where China was not really in the global conversation. Mm. Uh, it was, you know, maybe once in a while on a magazine cover saying, oh, this is the next big thing. You know, it's, it's getting on the, on the radar of world markets and stuff like that. But it was not right. as today. And so that was a time when, you know, looking at China was, was really, um, it was very much, very much similar. And I can see how it became a, kind of just a, a version of Afrofuturism. So saying, okay, you know, we have Afrofuturism where we, we sketched uh, the contours of this uh, complex temporality. And then, you know, what about China? What, 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 what kind of temporality would that be? You know, China coming, you know, back from the future or, you know, the famous Neo-China arrives from the future and all that stuff. And uh, you can kind of draw a line from that kind of Sinofuturism to today's uh, Sinofuturism which I think is, is pretty much a combination of different things. There is, you know, state propaganda because China loves to to say, okay, we, you know, we have our economy planned and here's our development plans for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. And in a way, uh, many, you know, Western media love to say, oh, you know, China's going to do this in, in 10 years and they're going to build, uh, you know, solar power in all the country and they're going to send people to Mars and stuff. And uh, um, then you have academia and research, and then you have businesses who look at China as a market and so try to push it as a future market and for investment. And there, there are many multiple threads that come together in this, you know, what, what then people perceive as the idea that China is the future, uh, you know, because to, to, to many people, it just trickles down to this fact. And so you, if you ask, you know, people on the street, just like, what do you think about China? It's like, oh yeah, it's the future developing fast. Sure. There's money and yeah. they're gonna they're gonna be better than the US. So it's you know, it's morphed from this very speculative exercise in imagining uh, a distant foreign place in, in futurist terms to uh, something very much different. And you know, to tie it back to the to Fabian's idea of like a denial of coevalness. What I've been thinking about and what I've been writing about is, you know, old school Orientalism was, you know, mostly about the Middle East and the Near East, but it was basically European people going there and saying, ah, oh, you know, the Middle East is stuck in the past. It's it's a place of wonder <laughs> and eternal pastness. Mm -hmm. So that's why he called this a denial of coevalness, because you would say, okay, you know, Middle Easterners and uh, Semitic people and Arabs, they're, you know, they're stuck in the past. That's it. Mm -hmm. and so in this way, you can distance them and kind of rule them. Um, 
And I'm wondering if, you know, with, with uh, Sanofuturism and other kinds of futurism, if business isn't just the same thing, but of a, like a reversed polarity. Mm. So you're saying, you know, oh, Chinese people live in the future, um, which on the surface, it seems like, oh, it's great. You mean they're more advanced or more, you know, you're already doing stuff that we should be doing. But on the other hand, you're, you're just, you know, taking a billion point six people and saying, you know, you live in a different temporality. Like you already live in the future, so so like don't come to Europe or don't don't mess with my trade or don't you know don't steal my factories and stuff like that. So there is always there is still this idea of like keeping uh, communities or, or nations uh, at bay through the mm. deployment of you know separate temporalities, um, mm. and that's what what I find interesting. So. I think you know, rather than saying oh, there is nothing there, uh, there's nothing there. It's more productive to, and what I'm trying to do is to say, okay, let's look at what is what threads are there, and how this idea of China as the future is being shaped up by different people, and how it's influencing you know geopolitics and uh, economy. I mean, it's interesting also because you know during that span of time when China was not really part of the global conversation, as you put it, um, China was also probably the world's one great exception to kind of the post-Cold War consensus as far as politics and, and economics. Um, and there was this uh, kind of expectation that China would join the fold, you know, after it joined the WTO and all of these things, the Olympics. Yeah. Um, and that has proven to be not so much the case. And and I'm not sure if that's a fulfillment of the kind of Sino-Futuristic, the original Sino-Futuristic um, vibe that you know maybe um what china is doing is is like demonstrating that yes it is you know carving out a future that's different from um the one that we had thought that it would the path that we thought it would take um but at the same time it, maybe it's um you know it makes me think of of uh of hong kong and you know hong kong being for the longest time you know the exception to the exception you know the part of china that was kind of plugged into um to global capital and and commerce, and now you know this this recent um, kind of eruption of of tensions between China and Hong Kong is you know they're, they're really just it it's like different visions of the future, different visions not just of China's future but also you know everything is so much more global now that like everything has connotations not just for China, not just for Hong Kong, but like for where the world is going you know everyone like it's it's hard not to read into these conflicts some kind of um vision of you know future uh co conflicts in europe or or the us um well i mean what, what i can say is that i i do agree that um it is interesting to see you know if china is actually carving a different future for itself but this is what most narratives about you know, Sino-Futurist, uh, most Sino-Futurist narratives or, you know, point of views kind of miss because I'm always, you know, reading them and they end up just, you know, interpreting things that happen, but not really looking at how China itself as an, as an you know, actor, as a, I don't know, Chinese government or some specific authorities or Chinese entrepreneurs or even the Chinese public, how do they articulate their own futures? Because you know, one thing, I mean, at least one thing that struck me, uh, you know, the many times I was on field work in China at different points in time and in different cities, 
is that, okay, I was reading all this uh, sino-futurist stuff, and then if I look around me, of course, I see massive buildings and, you know, screens everywhere and whatever. But then when I talk to people, people very rarely say, oh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to my, my sino-future, <laughs> right? The, people are concerned about their future, and they're, like, right. uncertain. And uh, the futures they imagine or that they're working towards are, are very rarely related to their country or right. to their feeling of nationhood right they might actually want to leave or they might just want to make money you know as quick mm -hmm. as, they, as they can where they mm -hmm. can and live in the place that's more comfortable so i mean i'm not saying that you know that they're all the same but to me these ideas of futurity are much more interesting than the you know massive uh, narratives that are often kind of like hyped uh, on, on the media yeah i think i was guilty of that just now you know and i and I, it's hard not to fall into this trap of trying to see uh some kind of grand narrative like emerging from the the small local stories you know not like it's hard when you're thinking about specifics not to try to to connect them back to some grand uh vision of you know possible futures or yeah sure but i don't think it's it's wrong i think it's it helps i mean you need to do it to kind of like get a bear your bearings and figure out where you are and where people are but yeah, I just I feel that it's more interesting to look into that, um, the, you know, the, the actual articulations of the future. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, another thing is also, yeah, I mean, yeah, you mentioned Hong Kong. I think that's a great case study at the moment because, um, you know, Hong Kong is the archetypal capitalist capital um, right. city state almost. I mean, special administrative region um, uh, that China uses to interface with global capitalism. And, you know, they're clearly right now, they're clearly and there have been for a decade, maybe uh, articulations of uh, a futurity that is not the official one that comes from China, because the, the one from China is clearly stated. It's, you know, it has a deadline on 2047, uh, after which nobody knows what will happen. But, you know, there are mm -hmm. continuous efforts to integrate Hong Kong with Shenzhen and in the greater Pearl, Pearl River Delta. So there are clear plans for the future of Hong Kong on the Chinese side. And, you know, what you see in Hong Kong is the emergence of alternative ideas of what Hong Kong should be. So you know, it should be um, for the most radical in independence, like achieving independence. For others, it should be resisting uh, certain specific uh, attempts by China at speeding up the process of integration. Um, and so I think this is like a case study in, uh, you know, one specific uh, Sino-futurism that maybe is Hong Kong futurism, uh, or anyway, it doesn't matter. The name doesn't matter, but it, it's clear that there is not just one China. Um, and I'm not talking about national sovereignty, but I'm talking about you know the sure. idea people uh, people's idea of being Chinese or being from Hong Kong. And um, you know, I'm thinking in Taiwan, nobody wants to hear about Sino-futurism because it doesn't concern them. Because um, you know. Uh, I don't know the percentage, but I, I'm guessing, you know, uh, a substantial part of Taiwan wouldn't have much to do with China, but some others might. Um, and, you know, I talk to people who think they're Chinese and are very much happy to do business with China and they think Taiwan is part of China. And so, you know, for them, the future of a strong China uh, and a wealthy China and in engaged in business with Taiwan is, is great. So there are always this conflicting futurities that... If you see them from a point of view of 
you know, the US or Europe or whatever we call as the West, there is always this risk of attributing, you know, the block of temporality to the whole place and just saying, okay, that's it. Uh, I need to be careful about it or it might be endangering my own future, but that's it. Kind of erases a lot of uh, uh, different temporalities that people might be experiencing yeah. there. Yeah, like there's definitely a contrast or a tension between um, Sino-futurism with some kind of capital S, capital F for future, that, you know, some kind of projection of this whole piece of like this, you know, like 1.6 billion people versus, you know, each individual person has their own like lowercase future that they're just, you know, trying to work towards. Um, yeah. And that's maybe what you get at with ethnography is like on the, on the, the, mag the order of magnitude of like tens of people instead of millions and billions of people, um, like what people are actually trying to accomplish with their lives. What are their actual priorities? What do they think the future holds for them? Yeah. But you, you can also, I mean, of course your perch, your analytical purchase is on this small scale, but right. what you can also always do is to, you know, once you're engaged with these people, then you can talk with them about the bigger narrative, mm -hmm. you know, about a, a billion point six seven people. And then, you know, that allows you to, you know, you're experiencing a very small scale, but you're talking about the larger scale. So you can kind of at least uh, compare how these people see the larger scale and not just how you see it. Because mm -hmm. how you see it is, <laughs> uh, I mean, not for us, but, you know, for many people in Europe and the US, it's, it's likely to be as a threat mm -hmm. or as an immediate mm -hmm. challenge to their own um, temporality. So. So, so what are some of the themes that have emerged from your, I, I think maybe just digging back into your work on, um, on Chinese social media, you know, selfies, memes, like what are people making memes about? Yeah. Well, my, my work started, um, quite randomly because I was doing research on underground music scenes and this was the late two thousands. And I started to realize that, um, all my research, uh, the threads of my research were pointing towards digital media because people were actually, you know, uploading music online and chatting online and making friends online. And the, the scene was like not just in venues, but on on, uh, on websites. So that's why I moved into um, doing more media-oriented digital media ethnography. And in the beginning, so I'm talking early 2000s when I started writing my, you know, doing research for my PhD, most of what was written about China was... Um, concerned with, uh, understandably concerned with politics and democratization mm -hmm. censorship. and censorship. Yeah, that was like the three big things. And there was some very good work done on it. But, you know, as ent entering into the field, I was like, okay, everybody's writing about the Great Firewall and everybody's writing about, you know, one specific meme that is uh, subversive against the state or the <laughs> Communist Party. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, or they're writing about the potential of uh, you know Weibo or this website for uh, the democracy in China. And so yeah. I didn't, I really didn't want to do one more thing of that kind. And instead, I mean, I was lucky because I had a lot of friends in China, and they all used all kinds of digital media, and they dragged me into these different kinds of websites and platforms, and uh, you know they shared memes with me, and uh, we we did stuff together. So I could. You know, I said, okay, now I can write about this as it's happening on a more granular, granular level 
not having you know necessarily to engage with uh, politics or, or the state. And of course I did, but you know, because it happens. But I was just, you know, I wanted to write something that explained um, how Chinese internet users were creating their own what I call digital folklore, which you know is a term I just borrowed from uh, mm. from Oli Elielina. But so basically, how how do people use the internet in a place that's clearly very much disconnected from the global internet? How do they create you know their own languages uh, and their own um, semiotic resources? So yeah, memes, but all kind of things like humor, jokes, um, ways of making fun of people, parodies. Uh, even online phenomena like, you know, planking and that kind of stuff. <laughs> I was just interested in the how 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 these things are produced in everyday life. And so, most of my research was just you know hanging out with friends in China and different cities and seeing how they use the smartphones or their computers to, you know, browse the internet and check out on their friends and exchange, or create memes sometimes. And uh, so, like the conclusions on my work are very much. Like especially seen from today, they're very, they're very uninteresting. I would say. I mean, it's just there is nothing that says, "Oh, Chinese people do this differently," or they do this because of a specific reason. It's more like, just like anybody else, right. uh, but in a different context, they they use what they can find at hand to create uh, their own languages that might be connected to a specific generation or a specific online communities or specific kind of interests and fandoms. Um, that's it, really. So, um, yeah, I, don't, I, I never really have a, an interesting conclusion to give, but that's why I guess I haven't written a, a unified, uh, you know, book-length discussion of this, but just short articles, which are usually, you know, separate topics. And, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that in and of itself is is a fairly, like, it's, it's an argument or a, a story that doesn't really get told that much in Western media because it's maybe on the surface not so interesting, which is just that Chinese people are just, you know, moving through, through their lives like like people are anywhere else. And they're making some memes about it and they're um, um, telling jokes, but they're they're going to school, they're going to work, they have careers, they're getting married. They're Yeah, I think the, you know, the it's always the, the difference comes from when when you look at you know a specific case, then you can have a more substantial conclusion. So, you know, one example could be the the, the article I wrote about selfies with a colleague. So on the surface, yeah, of course, I mean people in China take selfies like anybody else takes selfies all over the world, right? But what changes is you know there there are different changes that you can see at a more granular level when you do ethnographic engagement or interviews because okay now you see that people. Are, uh, not just using iPhones, but they have all kind of, you know, Chinese brands of phones that might have different cameras or cameras that flip or cameras that have beauty filters embedded in them. So that's already shaping, you know, the kind of selfies they take. And then you look at the apps. So, okay, they're not sharing them on Instagram, but they're sharing them through WeChat, which has different privacy controls and different, you know, uh, kind of social connections. So many of the people have their parents or their family on WeChat. So they don't want to, you know, they're not sharing the kind of selfies that you would share on Instagram, but they're applying different filters or masking their surroundings and stuff. So these kind of things, um, you know, I think are more valuable mm. conclusions, but you can only see them on a very like sure. small scale well, or on a very specific um, 
I mean, yeah. not necessarily, because at the same time, you're also seeing some of those same um, features make their way into Western social media, too. You know, with like TikTok and yeah, yeah, sure. Instagram. Snapchat yeah, no, what I mean is like, it's it's hard to generalize, because if you... If you generalize, then you end up saying, you know, the usual things like, okay, well, I guess Chinese people don't care about privacy right. or like, I guess they right. care, you know, like if you generalize, it's hard to maintain the validity of the point, but definitely it's important because then, you know, a year later you see that, I mean, TikTok is now like huge in India and the US and it's creating all kinds of, of questions for people there. And, you know, a year before you could just have studied how it was used in China, you'll probably have, could have predicted some of these issues. So I think we're we're probably running short on time, um, but maybe maybe an interesting um, note to end on would be TikTok. You know, as maybe one point of of intersection where um, the like the big picture stories of like China and technology is kind of bleeding through not in not just into like Chinese everyday life, but into everyday life in uh, in other parts of the world in the US, like TikTok is so popular, but it's like, uh, I, I wonder if it even has, if there are some aspects of, uh, not to be like essentialist about it, but like, is there something Chinese about TikTok? Uh, I think there is something Chinese in the sense that it's very much product of its time. Um, I mean, if you look at TikTok on a purely, you know, interface-based level, and what it does and how people use it, it's basically Vine, right? It's like mm. it has to take that uh, niche of an app. I mean, Vine failed and disappeared and now it's just archived and there hasn't been an alternative for a long time. I mean, Instagram videos have kind of filled that niche. But TikTok is very much Chinese in the sense that it's probably the first app uh, that is uh, created in China by a massive Chinese startup. Um, that manages to become global because even WeChat, it's, you know, it's huge in China and it has uh, made some uh, efforts to reach other markets, but it's never gone global. But TikTok is the first app that actually manages to, you know, to, to arrive in the U.S. and many people don't even know it's actually created by a Chinese company. So I think in that sense, it's very much Chinese as in it's very much about China in 2019 and the state of its digital media industry, whereas it has become competitive and probably, you know, pioneering, at least in some respects, and kind of uh, sensing and getting the pulse of what is the global uh, state of uh, social media usage. So, you know, they made a product that is, you know, that has success worldwide because it allows people to just take videos and have fun and just scroll through random stuff around them. And uh, yeah, in that sense, it's, it's very representative. And it's also, you know, it's very much, it's purposefully non-Chinese in its presentation. So when you install TikTok, you, you would really not have a clue that it's Chinese because it has adopted a, you know, kind of a name that is not Chinese and all the, you know, there is nothing visibly Chinese about it. And so mm. I think that's part of its success. Do you think that Chinese people use TikTok differently from how Westerners use it? Because it fits into a different place in the respective like social media ecosystems. Like, does TikTok mean something different in China from what it does in, in Europe or the US? 
Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely different. Well, I mean, first of all, they you know they started using it much earlier because I mean the, the Chinese version Boeing was was out years ago, right? And um, it's also it has also you know much more competition in China mm. because it's just one among many of these uh, micro video apps. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I've actually never done research on doing in china so about tiktok but i've done research about other video apps that were very popular around 2016 17 mm-hmm. and you know people were using them in in very specific ways already um in my case it was they were used for uh very like small scale celebrity online celebrity right. building especially in more rural areas and also to sell stuff, to sell services. So as a kind of a promotional uh, platform. Yeah. So I'm guessing that Douyin is used in a similar way in China. And I don't know how it's been adopted in other places. But, you know, for what I've seen, it's, it's, it kind of filled the niche of uh, that Vine left from the kind of humor. And, uh, and then it also bought Musical.ly, which kind of made it, right. you know, it kind of combined these two kind of user bases. So the more like, performative singing uh, mm-hmm. user base with a more uh, video-based one. So yeah, that's that's it. There's something really interesting about TikTok and the, um, you know, how you can use the audio from a previous video and, yeah. and like pair up, like um, mime it out, whether it's music or, or like dubbing over someone else's words. It allows for like this interesting, it's like almost like a new type of uh, like a meme format that it's not visual, but it's audio and visual because you're using someone else's audio with a new video. Yeah, I should look into, yeah, I should, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if this was actually uh, incorporated in the app after they acquired Musical.ly because mm. I'm, I'm thinking it might be, you know, part of mm. the same architecture. Um but yeah, I mean, the, the whole popularity of TikTok comes from the fact that it enables um, for these meme formats or for these, you know, uh, for different sticks that you can do uh, easily because it, you know, it's already prepared. It's like Snapchat filters, but like on a massive level, which to have like backgrounds and uh, motion, camera motions mm-hmm. and ways of cutting between scenes just with mm-hmm. a smartphone. So uh you know, it's definitely something that is very much aware of meme culture yeah. in 2019 and what uh, people that want to create this kind of content, what they need uh, in technical terms. And so, yeah, it's successful. I mean, it's as, as many apps, it would just, you know, probably just go up and down when the next iteration of a, a new app comes out. Who knows sure. from where, but, you know, it just shows how these, these market uh, shift and flow around mm-hmm. uh, globally. And I think the the micro celebrity thing is also interesting because that's something that I've noticed on both like TikTok as well as like Chinese video platforms is this this emergence of micro celebrities who are um, extremely popular within like this like very niche fan base whether it's you know because they're good looking or they're funny or they uh, have some kind of shtick that they do. Um, like the, the dynamics around it are actually like more similar than I would have expected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like the difference that I felt was more pronounced was that uh, at least in Italy, I don't know how it is in the US, but uh, at least in Italy, when you have uh, these kind of platforms and they have a kind of locational function. So like if I open TikTok, 
here, I will see Italian TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas in China, I, I, I felt like these kind of video apps were much more local mm. based. So people like would look at people around them, um, if it makes sense. This might be like just a matter of like scale of the country or, um, but even with live streamers and stuff, there was always, uh, you know, the kind of a lo localization of like trying to interact with streamers in your own city or something like that. So there's more like much more like granular uh, idea of locality. Um, so yeah, as I said, the, the video app I was looking at, I was in a con like in a countryside and I would just see <laughs> countryside related content around me. And even like the channels, the, the, they were advertising something were actually nearby. So like people who see those advertisements can just go and buy stuff. So I don't know. It just like my perception was that it was much more like less nationwide and more like locally based, which might be the case because people want to use this apps to you know make some money quick money and you know help their business and to help their business they need to stay local rather than go like nationwide nobody would care any closing thoughts oh, i mean many thoughts there was a, there's a lot of uh, interesting questions that we managed to uh, yeah <laughs> squeeze together and i hope it makes sense but uh we started from field yeah. recordings down to tiktok it's pretty wild but yeah it was good yeah no i mean there's so much to cover and i feel like this this could easily have been six different conversations. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm wondering if I can try to thread together some kind of concluding thought or question, but it's difficult, as you said, because like whenever you start to talk about these things, like the conclusion is always just that stuff is more complicated than we thought. Yeah, but I think it fits. It's, I mean, it fits the podcast, or at least the, the idea I got of the podcast by listening to it. Sure. Because I mean, this idea of, you know, coordinated universal time, but also the, the whole idea of uh, thinking about you know, the future and uh, in, a, in a more open-ended way, um, like in a more speculative, open-ended way, and, you know, finding strategies and tactics for making sense of it. I don't have a solution, and I don't want to <laughs> come across as saying, you know, everybody come do ethnography. I, I don't think methods are ever the solution. I think, you know, it's always about what you do with them. Mm. Um, and I think the, the the biggest effort is always, you know, threading things back together, just mm. like we did in this episode. Mm. And so, you know, the, I guess the encouragement would be just like, you know, go find find out stuff and then thread it together uh, in a way that's, you know, that has a purpose or that works, basically. Thanks for listening, everyone. Coordinated Universal Time, signing off. Coordinated Universal Time is a sonic collage of Fox Fireside readings, thinking machines, disembodied conversations, music we found in this world or made in another, deep time reverberations and field recordings from the front lines of a future held in common, an aural zine hand-pasted and neural networked by solar golems from the 23rd century, still quickening in the coals of the present. A podcast for now.
Thank you.